Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. In the past year, many of us started paying a bit more attention to our sense of smell than we did before, because losing it is one sign of COVID-19. Our guest today helps us discover just how important this sense really is to our everyday experience and exactly what goes on in your nose and in your brain when you detect a certain aroma. Before we start, though, one request. Please make sure you've subscribed or favorited or followed this podcast in your podcast platform of choice. Thanks. All right, let's get started. Today, we'd like to introduce you to the osmocosm. That's the term our guest, Harold McGee, uses to describe the wide world of smells that surround us. It includes odors you're already familiar with, a rose, a wet dog, meat on the grill, and those that make it overlooked, like the smell of your laptop or the scent of a loved one. In his book, Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells, McGee reveals the science behind many aromas, how we perceive them, and how that affects our experience of everyday life. He's a James Beard award-winning author of several other books about the science of cooking and food. Harold McGee, welcome to Health Now. Thank you, Carrie. It's wonderful to be with you. I wonder if you could describe for us what's happening when we detect a scent in the air. What exactly is it that we're picking up on what our nose is detecting? And how do our brains figure out what those smells are? Well, it turns out that smell is our most direct and immediate contact with the material world around us. You know, sight and hearing, we're, we're detecting uh, light waves and we're detecting pressure waves in the air. In the case of smell, we're actually detecting little bits of the things around us. They're molecules, uh, single molecules that the uh, materials are emitting uh, constantly. And um, uh, the molecules that are smellable are small enough that they can actually escape from whatever they're in and fly through the air and up into our nose where our olfactory receptors can detect them. When they detect them, they send a signal to the brain and then the brain uh, takes that information and adds it to all the other information it's getting at that moment to try to make sense of what it is that we're detecting. And it puts that into uh, an overall perception of the smell. I see. So maybe, you know, it probably compares it to something maybe you've smelled before, or if it's a new smell, maybe trying to, to relate it to something that you're already familiar with. Exactly. It, it uh, searches its database for uh, similar experiences and, uh, and helps us identify what it is that we're smelling based on that experience. That's fascinating. You, you talk in the book about the sheer number of aromas that are around us all the time, but we rarely you know, sit around and just ponder what they are. In fact, in some cases, you can even become nose blind to smells that you are around often, you know, you don't smell it, but someone who's new to the situation might. So if there are so many scents around us all the time, why don't we pay attention to them constantly? 
Well, uh, a couple of different reasons, but uh, the main one has to do with the fact that our senses are are designed by evolution to uh, alert us to uh, important things going on in our in our environment. You know, either um, uh, danger, potential danger, or the uh, the arrival of a potential mate, or the uh, availability of food things like that things that are important for survival and if we're sitting in a in a room 8 hours a day and the room has particular objects in it that give off smells well uh, when we walk into that room we may notice the smell of the room but uh, after we we've, we've spent a couple of minutes there uh, the brain kind of figures you know this information is really not that important uh, the the smells are not changing, they're constant, they're familiar, and so it begins to tune out and pay pay attention to other things. That makes sense because you would spend a lot of time just being overwhelmed by your senses if that were not the case. <laughs> exactly. The, the The brain is uh, is always kind of subconsciously uh, choosing what information to feed to our uh, awareness, our consciousness, and then uh, that's that's what we happen to notice at a at a given moment. I see. As we mentioned earlier, you've written several books about about food and cooking, but this is your first foray into talking about the sense of smell. I'm curious how you got interested in this subject. Was there a particular smell that inspired you to learn more? Well, uh, you know, the the great pleasure that we take in food and drink uh, is largely uh, due to smell. We en enjoy flavors, and flavor is a sensation that's a, it's a combination of taste on the tongue and also smell in the nose. And uh, taste gives us kind of the foundation of a flavor, the, the basics, sweet, sour, salty, bitter, and so on. Uh, it's really the aromas that give us the tremendous variety of, uh, of smell, of flavors that we enjoy in foods. And so I, I've been interested in smell indirectly for that reason for decades, uh, because I've been writing about food for that long. And uh, it occurred to me uh, around 2000, the year 2000, that we might have learned enough about the nature of smells and, and how it is that we perceive them, that I might be able to write a book about that subject, that aspect of food. And then as I got going into that project, I realized that very often, what's interesting about a smell uh, in food is that it reminds us some uh, reminds us of something else in the world. Uh, wine uh, connoisseurs are always talking about, you know, the the floral notes or the uh, the oceanic notes or the smell of leather in wines, and yet uh, wines don't they're not made up out of flowers and leather in the ocean. Uh, so I began to wonder why it is that things that we enjoy in food and drink uh, tend to echo things in the rest of the world. And that got me interested in why things in the rest of the world have the smells they do. And that's how I ended up going down this rabbit hole. That leads perfectly to my next question, which is, um, you know, you've described wines that can smell like leather in the book, you talk about coffee and, and wine that can smell like horse stables, you know, cheeses that smell like fruit or even like animals and many other examples. So why do the things that seem unrelated end up having similar sense to us? 
Well, it turns out that smells, we, we tend to think of the smell of a thing as a, as a, you know, unified sort of thing. So, you know, the smell of banana must be a banana smell. But in fact, uh, all the smells that we encounter in the world are mixtures of molecules. So rather than thinking of them as, uh, you know, single notes in a musical analogy, they're much more like chords uh, with, made up of many different notes. And then the overall effect is how we identify them. So it turns out that uh, many things in the world share notes. Uh, they, they have very different overall smells, but they share components, which then can remind us of, uh, of these other things. So, for example, in the case of cheeses, uh, cheeses are uh, fermented milk. Uh, they're made up of uh, largely of proteins and fats. Those molecules are too big to have smells of their own, uh, but when they're broken down by the uh, microbes that are used to ferment cheese, to make cheese, uh, then those breakdown products, those fragments of the proteins and fats uh, can be volatile and fly through the air and into our nose where we can enjoy them. And it turns out that the animal body is also mostly protein and fat. And so uh, that's how uh, the, um, the uh, microbes that live in and on us, uh, fermenting us <laughs> in a way, uh, can, can end up uh, producing the same fragments that uh, are produced in the fermentation of cheese. So that is why there's some cheeses that can end up smelling like feet. Exactly. And those cheeses in particular, you know, are, are uh, almost intentionally made to smell that way because they're, when they're ripening, the cheesemaker will uh, periodically wash them with a brine, a uh, saltwater solution, which is pretty much uh, the equivalent of sweat on a human being. Hmm, <laughs> and so, interesting. <laughs> uh, what they're, they're, constantly reapplying this, this analog of sweat to the cheeses. And so they develop a sweaty kind of flavor. Interesting. It's wow. That's very much mimicking what's happening on a human body. That's really interesting. I wanted to go through a few other objects that have this kind of smell connection and ask you to describe why the scents seem related. Um, and one that <laughs> is one of my favorites is the connection between the smell of a dog's paws and corn chips, which if you smelled this smell, you know exactly what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is an amazing thing. And, you know, there are some examples of uh, echoes among different things in the world that are just purely by chance. So in the case of the, the cheeses, that's, that's really not chance because uh, cheesemakers are intentionally drawing out those kinds of aromas. In the case of dog paws and corn chips, of course, <laughs> there, there isn't any uh, uh, real connection there. It's, it's a matter of chance. So dog paws are a very happy haven for many, many microbes. Uh, uh, we, we, uh, animal bodies in general are uh, that they are, you know, niches where microbes can find nourishment. And in the case of dog paws, there's a particular bacterium uh, called Pseudomonas, which uh, tends to generate a particular uh, small molecule to 
for for the different cells to signal to each other that they're there and how many are there and that kind of thing. Uh, so in the case of the dog paws, it's a matter of those uh, nice moist crevices being a hospitable home for microbes. In the case of corn chips, of course, it's very, very different. So uh, corn um, is a, a grain that has a particular uh, amino acid makeup. The, the proteins contain particular amino acids. And um, when you process corn to make corn chips, it turns out that you break down some of those proteins into those component amino acids. And then when you apply high heat to them, you when you fry the corn chips, you generate uh, that same molecule that's being used by microbes in dog paws as a signal. So it's a, a completely chance sort of thing, but uh, as you say, absolutely un unmistakable when you <laughs> when you right. smell a dog's paws. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable when you make that realization for the first time, like, huh, am I imagining this? But clearly we're not. It's a, a, a wonderful example, a very clear example of how um, uh, different smells are chords uh, made up of notes, and those notes can come from very different processes depending on what it is that we're smelling. Yes, that makes sense. All right, another object pairing paired by this smell connection is one that's perhaps a little less pleasant, cat urine and wine. Can you go over that one for us? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it turns out that uh, cat urine contains uh, very potent uh, sulfur molecules that are, uh, generally speaking to the human nose, kind of stinky. Uh, sulfur molecules in general have that quality. And it turns out that uh, cats will use that stinky sulfur, one of those uh, stinky sulfur molecules, again, as a signal uh, to mark their territory with their urine. And it uh, turns out to be a really interesting system that scientists have studied, but because it's a kind of uh, time release system, uh, the, mm. the, the cats uh, put this molecule into a, a combination with another molecule that then slowly releases the stinky sulfur one over the course of hours and days. So the cat doesn't have to keep coming to the same spot to, to mark its territory. It lasts for a while. Mm -hmm. And it turns out uh, for reasons that uh, as far as I am aware, no plant biologist has been able to figure out, but it turns out that uh, uh, certain varieties of grape make exactly that same sulfur molecule. Uh, and it may well be that it's a, uh, a defensive molecule. It may be there to make the grape smell a little stinky so that uh, you know, the wrong animal doesn't come along and uh, chew the grape up along with its seeds and destroy the chance for those seeds to, um, to germinate. Uh, but it really hasn't been figured out. But it does turn out that precisely the same molecule that you find in cat pee uh, is also there in Sauvignon Blanc wines in particular. And if you pay attention, you can, you can smell it. I have never noticed that. And I, I can't say I'm going to look for it the next time I have a glass of Sauvignon Blanc, but <laughs> it's good to know that it's there. <laughs> Well, and it, uh, it, it really is interesting. You know, again, it's something that 
uh, winemakers in particular regions have gone to some efforts to uh, to enhance its smellability hmm. <laughs> uh, exactly because it kind of it gives a, an interest to the overall wine flavor that it wouldn't have otherwise you know so it's not in in the case of cat pee what you're smelling is basically that molecule and it's just overwhelming in the case of wine it's there just as in a little trace uh, and if you don't know it's there, then you may, may not even notice it. Um, but it gives a kind of uh, an, an added dimension to the flavor that can make that flavor interesting without being disgusting <laughs> the way right. cat pee is. Right. Going back to that analogy about the, the smell being a chord versus a single note. Exactly. Yeah. The, the chord is much more complex in the case of wine and uh, the, the cat pee note is, is buried down in there. It's not the, the overwhelming uh, obvious one. Right. This last object pairing um, is one that I, I have to say I have a little trouble envisioning, but here we go. The smell of a blooming Bradford pear tree, which maybe a lot of people are smelling this time of year, and semen. Yes, <laughs> this is one of the stranger ones. Yes, uh, and um, again, it's it's um, a matter of the, uh, the 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 kind of biological network in which uh, living things find themselves and use the signals that are available to them to uh, to survive. So, in the case of the flowers. You know, we, we tend to think of flowers as having generally very pleasant smells like roses and lilacs and that kind of thing. But it turns out that um, lots of flowers aren't trying to attract bees and butterflies and nice insects like that. They're trying to uh, attract flies. Hmm. which are just, just as good as bees and butterflies at transferring pollen from one flower to another. And so in order to attract flies, you have to um, tell the fly that there's something that it would be interested in for it to come visit the flower. And so there are many flowers in the world that actually smell kind of nasty because the flowers are imitating the smells of decaying organic matter. Uh, including animal bodies and and excrement and things like that. So there are uh, lots of flowers in the world that emit those kinds of volatile molecules rather than the nice, pleasant, flowery ones. And it turns out that um, one molecule that's made by a decaying animal body is um, a nitrogen-containing ring uh, that is also a component in uh, semen. And so that's what we smell when we smell. Uh, Bradford uh, pear trees are uh, planted by the hundreds in some, uh, especially suburban neighborhoods, because they put on a really nice show in the springtime. And they're uh, nice, uh, easygoing street trees. But there is this aromatic note that can, um, depending on the atmospheric conditions, just become overwhelming. Right. They do have that very distinctive smell. That's you. You immediately know there's a tree in the area, if even if you can't see it immediately. Um, yeah, and it's and it's not a. It, it's a an almost a slightly suffocating kind of smell. You know, it's not it's not a lovely rosy smell. It's it's something that's floral but different. Mm -hmm, certainly. 
You know, in the past year, many people have become even more aware of their senses of smell and taste because losing them was a symptom of COVID-19. And uh, you and I were talking before, it sounds like this has happened to you, not COVID related, but you have gone through a period where you lost your sense of smell briefly. I'm curious if you can tell us how you think the loss of a sense of smell, how it affected you, but also how it kind of just generally affects a person's everyday experience. Yeah, well, I, I did lose my sense of smell for a couple of months uh, in the course of writing this book about smell. So oh, wow. that was kind of scary. That is eerie. <laughs> um, and uh, it, again, because my usual subject is food and drink, uh, what I, of course, noticed right away was that it took all the pleasure out of eating and drinking. I mean, I, I would be satisfying my hunger and I would be satisfying my thirst, but I wasn't enjoying the, the experience in the way that I was used to. Uh, there was just nothing there. There was, uh, you know, sweetness and saltiness and that kind of thing. And there was um, pungency if I was having a, a hot dish, a chili uh, dish. Uh, but otherwise, just no, none of the usual interests that, that you can take in food and drink. And in cooking, you know, I just wasn't aware of what was going on. I, I, I burned toast all the time because I couldn't smell that it was going oh. past nice and brown. Right. Uh, and that can actually be dangerous because, of course, if you uh, um, have a, a gas stove and for some reason the pilot light doesn't light, then you're supposed to be able to smell the gas to, to turn it off. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, it just it, it removes a, an entire dimension out of uh, the the experience of of life in general. Uh, walking down the street, walking into your own home, uh, these experiences have smells associated with them. And when you uh, subtract that uh, perception from everyday life, then you're you're just missing a piece of that life. That's interesting. You know, so I don't think a lot of people really pay much attention to their sense of smell, or maybe we just take it for granted, you know, and it's kind of common lore that, you know, humans don't have a very acute sense of smell. You know, we associate that more with, you know, dogs or other animals that, that really depend on it, but it really is more integral uh, to our experience than we might suspect. That's right. And the the reason I think that we don't pay so much attention to it is that we've kind of uh, scrubbed it from our <laughs> our daily lives. Right. You know, if, if you imagine living uh, in the time before settlements, before cities, when, when we were hunter-gatherers, for example, uh, smell was our way of really being in tune with what was going on around us. You know, not everything is visible. Not everything is audible. Uh, you can you can smell rain coming from a mile away. Uh, just all kinds of things that, in the natural world, would be important to our lives. And you know, when we construct uh, a our our human environment, our cities and houses and things like that, for the most part, what we've done is insulate ourselves from uh, from the smells of. Um, of the natural world and we're stuck with the smells of keyboards and and uh you know furniture polishes and things like that which is a very limited palette by comparison 
Right. And yeah, there's a whole industry that's designed to make things not smell or cover up, you know, particular smells uh, with artificial um, fragrances, I, I suppose. Yeah, uh, artificial fragrances and and kind of uh, cliches, you know, lemon is supposed to smell fresh and pine is mm. supposed to smell fresh. Uh, but, you know, they're nothing like uh, a real lemon peel or nothing like walking through the woods. And so uh, one of the things I'm hoping that my book will do is encourage people to get back out into the world whenever get, they get the chance, even walking down the street and, you know, um, inhaling and paying attention to the, the smells of dinner being cooked or the, the smell of laundry being done. Um, uh, it just uh, adds a lot to, to the experience day to day. Right, certainly. Do you think, you know, whether it's doctors or the wider world are paying more attention to the sense of smell, um, you know, in the, in the wake of this pandemic we've all been through in the past year. No, that's absolutely been the case because uh, it was clear pretty early on that one of the earliest symptoms of COVID was the loss of the sense of smell. It turns out to be a very, very common symptom, and uh, it's affected a lot of people. And because we don't know that much about the sense of smell, it's been very difficult for people in the medical community to offer advice either about, you know, uh, how quickly it's going to come back or when it doesn't come back, what to do about that. There's also, in addition to the loss of the sense of smell, the um, kind of disturbance of the sense of smell. So when it comes back, it often comes back with everything smelling bad instead of uh, like, like themselves, things. Oh, dear. Um, smelling like themselves. And so uh, the result of that, the the uh, upside, if, it, if you can talk about that, is that now the medical community is paying much more attention to the sense of smell and how it works and how it doesn't work. And um, there are a couple of places people can go to learn more about that if they want to. Uh, there's a, a website out of the UK called absent.org, A-B-S-C-E-N-T.org. So the absence of the, of the sense of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a website that started before COVID um, for uh, Patients uh, often undergoing chemotherapy will have problems with their sense of uh, smell and sense of taste. Uh, when COVID arrived and the problems became uh, more evident, um, they became much more uh, uh, kind of center for sharing information, not only uh, among people suffering COVID uh, symptoms, but also for the medical community to get information about what people were experiencing. So I encourage anyone who's uh, at all interested in knowing more about that from whatever perspective uh, to go to absent.org. And uh, uh, that'll be the place where we'll begin to piece together what it is that can be done when, um, when the sense of smell is, is damaged by COVID. Are there other conditions that can cause a loss of smell? I've heard in the past that that can sometimes be an early sign of Alzheimer's disease, but are there other ones you're aware of? 
Well, uh, it, it does turn out that uh, what I experience, the kind of temporary loss of smell, is not that uncommon. Uh, it's just that people tend not to report it or go to the doctor about it, uh, again, because smell isn't uh, considered to be that big a deal a lot of the time. Uh, so it turns out that uh, viral infections will uh, cause most people to lose their sense of smell for at least a brief period of time sometime during their lives. In the case of um, uh, Alzheimer's, it's one of the early symptoms of Alzheimer's, uh, not so much a total loss like I experienced, but a diminished um, sensitivity to smells. You know, the smell has to be stronger for someone to notice it. And then they may have trouble uh, recognizing it um, making the connection with their, with their database of past experiences. So they may not be able to, uh, to name it. Uh, and then it, it is true that, uh, alas, over the course of a lifetime, our, uh, sense of smell does become less and less sensitive with time. Uh, so older people are generally less sensitive to, uh, the smells around them than, than young people. That is, however, something that you can act actively um, work against. So if you uh, pay attention to smells in a, in a kind of mindful, attentive way and, and um, you know, just make yourself, uh, that actually that doesn't sound so nice, um, invite yourself to, uh, for example, <laughs> open up your spice cabinet and remind yourself what uh, the smell of fenugreek is, and then try to find that smell in a in a curry powder, which yeah. is a, a complex mixture, or um, smell a Coca Cola and uh, and then try to pick out the different uh, aromas that go to make that uh, quintessential cola smell. Those yeah. kinds of activities can can help you hang on to your ability to um, to detect and identify and enjoy smells. That's interesting. You know, you hear lots of talk about, you know, other types of brain activities, you know, to keep your cognition strong, but you would never think about doing that for your sense of, of smell and taste, I assume, would be closely related there. Yeah, taste, taste as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it turns out to be a challenge for the brain, uh, not to have lots of other information to add to the sense of smell in order to identify things. So, you know, if you, if you smell a, a strawberry and you're looking at a strawberry, it's very easy for you to identify the smell. But if you, uh, blindfold yourself and then somebody puts a strawberry in front of your nose, you may recognize the smell, but you may not be able to name it as strawberry because that's, that's just not uh, something the brain is used to doing. So if you uh, get, the, if you put your brain through its paces, you know, if you uh, challenge it in those kinds of ways, then you can help the brain uh, hang on to that uh, that ability to recognize and identify smells. Very interesting. Is it true that a smell can trigger vivid memories, maybe even more so than other senses? You know, maybe a perfume perfume that your grandmother wore, or you know, a, a medicine or a soap that you remember from childhood. 
Yeah, it is uh, generally true that uh, people often report uh, very strong emotional, emotionally laden memories uh, stimulated by particular smells. And there are a couple of reasons why that can be the case. One is that the, uh, the wiring of the brain uh, takes the information from the olfactory receptors and takes it initially and immediately to the part of the brain that is responsible for emotion and for um, uh, recognizing desirable and under, undesirable situations. Uh, so the, the wiring is very direct, whereas in the case of sight and hearing, uh, it's much less direct. It has to go through other relay points before it gets to that area. The other thing is that uh, smells are more episodic than uh, sight and hearing are. You know, our, our eyes are feeding us information all the time. We're seeing things all the time. We're uh, detecting this, the smells, particularly of childhood, much less frequently, you know, especially if it's the smell of someone you haven't seen for decades. Um, and so that, that uh, particular sensation doesn't have lots of other associations to go along with it. It does, it takes you right back to the person or the situation that really made an impression on you. And that may have been decades ago rather than, you know, yesterday. Interesting, but such a direct connection between your sense of smell and the parts of your brain that deal with emotions, kind of almost like a clue to how important the sense of smell really is. Yeah, if you think about it, um, because it's giving us direct information about the material things around us in a way that um, vision and hearing really don't, they're, they're much uh, less direct. Uh, the sense of smell is, is a chemical sense, and uh, that's how the earliest forms of life would have known what was going on around them and, you know, what direction to swim in to go for food or what direction to go in because there was something dangerous. Um, so even the simplest bacteria have a, a, a chemical sense that tells them, gives them that kind of information. And smell is our, um, you know, a so-called modern, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, highly developed version of that uh, very basic chemical sense. How much does the sense of smell vary from person to person with other senses? You know, some people hear better than others or have sharper vision, but is the sense of smell that variable between people? Uh, the sense of smell is quite variable among people. And that's partly because uh, in order to detect the tremendous variety of molecules that are around us all the time. We have, instead of uh, just a handful of receptors, which is the case for, uh, for vision, we have hundreds of receptors for the sense of smell. And because um, those receptors are um, coded for by our genes, and because we all have different sets of genes, we all have different sets of olfactory receptors. It's thought that uh, there are no two people on the planet who have exactly the same set of olfactory receptors in, in the same numbers, which wow. means that uh, our brains are getting very different inputs uh, as to what's around us. 
And so in addition to the fact that we all have different databases of experience to, to register uh, and identify things, we uh, just at the, at the most immediate level of uh, sensation have very different inputs coming to the brain from the outside world. Do you feel that you made your sense of smell stronger or more refined when you were doing the research for this book? I'm, I'm curious um, how it's changed your daily life, I suppose. Well, it's, it's uh, made me much more aware <laughs> of right. what's going on. Uh, and yeah, it, it's uh, because it was the subject of my book and because I was interested in it uh, initially because of my interest in food, um, when my uh, perspective broadened and I began to pay attention to other things in the world and just sniffing around, you know, whatever I came across, the, the pages of a book or the, the smells coming from my computer, uh, it, it certainly sensitized me to an aspect of the world that I had been, you know, pretty uh, uh, unsensitized to, except for the, the limited domain of food and drink. So, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend it because, you know, there's always something going on in the air around us that's, um, that's interesting and, and worth paying attention to. Well, the book is Nosedive, A Field Guide to the World's Smells. And um, Harold McGee, thank you so much for talking with us today. It was so fascinating to learn more about the subject. Well, thank you, Carrie. It was a great pleasure. Thanks for joining us today and hope everyone has a great week. Talk to you next time.